morning. If you would, open a Bible with me to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 is where we'll get started with this morning. Acts chapter 4. Good to see you. We have a number of visitors with us. Thank you for being here. We want you to feel welcome, and we're glad that you've chosen to be here. Of all the places you could be on this fine morning, you've chosen to be here with us worshiping God, and we're appreciative of that. If we can help you in some way to know the Lord better, if there's some crisis or issue in your life that we can help you with, we'd love to know about that. So please stick around and let us know how we can help and serve you. Had a couple of things I wanted to mention before I get started. First of all, I am glad to be home. I haven't been up here in a couple of weeks. And uh, I am really appreciative to Zach and to everybody who was patient with Zach while he preached over the last two weeks. That was a joke. Where did he go? Um, so uh, I made him disappear with my jokes. He's not there. Uh, but I uh, appreciate him filling in for me. And last week I was in a meeting uh, with the church in Saratoga and uh, went very well. Really enjoyed getting to know those brethren. In fact, some of them are here this morning. Not because they're following me around, but because they had some things to do with the state fair this morning. But it's good to see them. We just had a really enjoyable week, and, uh, but it's good to be home. Also, I wanted to tell you that uh, this coming weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, uh, we are having uh, our weekend meeting that we've been planning and announcing about for some time. And I just want to make sure everybody is remembering that and planning to do uh, to be here so that we can worship God and study together for that. Now, as has been mentioned, we're inviting back... Six of the men, or five of the men, who have trained and worked with this congregation. This congregation has for many years worked to help young men who are starting to preach, uh, to develop, and to work here with the congregation. And uh, then those young men, several of them have gone on to do full-time preaching work. And so we've invited them to come back and preach for us. I want to say the goal of this weekend is not so that we can all look at these young men, see how much older they've gotten, and do the old, oh, isn't that cute? They're trying to preach. Okay, the goal is we're actually going to study the Bible. And so what we're doing this weekend is we're studying through some parables. We have six men. They're going to give us six lessons, two on Friday night, two on Saturday night, and then our regular Sunday service. And they're going to give us lessons from the parables of Jesus. It's going to be worth our time to come. Of course, it will be enjoyable to, to get in touch with those men again. But more than that, I want us to come and to grow from their study and their work in the Word of God. So be planning for that and looking forward to that this coming weekend. Also, Sarah has asked me, uh, she, is, she had tried to send out emails about the ladies' devotional she's been doing on the third Sunday night of each month. And for some reason, a lot of those emails came back, and some said they didn't get the emails. So I'm supposed to announce tonight at 5 o'clock, it's at the Walls House this month, uh, there'll be the ladies' devotional, and all of you are invited to that. So I wanted to be sure and do my duty with that. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. Acts 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. We have a description here of a church from the era of the apostles. The New Testament not only tells us about Jesus and the life and work of Jesus, it also gives us information about the first disciples and what they did, the work of the Holy Spirit among them and through them. And the question is, what do we do with this information? With all of these descriptions and all of this data about all of these churches, what they did, the struggles they had, and the different people who worked together then. 
And the question I want to raise is, should we be like New Testament churches? Are we intended to take this information and emulate it, or is it there for some other reason? Is it there for our education solely? Now, this is important to us because this is our plea. As the Fairview Church, we have as our stated mission, we are trying to follow the New Testament. We want to just follow the Bible. We don't follow any man here, any man-made ideas. We just want to follow the Bible for our teaching and for our practices. But this question is, is that right? Is that the kind of plea we should have? Or is there some other purpose to the to texts that we have? Now, this is a year where we have been talking about first principles things. All throughout our year, our theme has been revisiting the foundations. And we talked a lot about Jesus. We spent much of the year talking about Jesus and his life and things about him. And then we spent some time talking about the Bible. And we talked about the origin of the Bible. We talked about how we understand the Bible. And now we have transitioned to what we're calling Christian responses. And we've talked about what we need to do to be saved. And now today we're going to talk about whether we should be like New Testament churches. The foundation of what we do as a group. Should we be like what they were? We are going to have something that guides and unites us as we work together. Something that is what decides what our practices are going to be. And the question is, what will that be? Will it be sort of a democracy where we say, well, what does everybody think? What do you think is best? And what do you think is best? And what do I think is best? We'll vote on it. And then that'll be what we decide to do. And if you don't like it, well, you can just find some other church because we're going to do what the majority of us think is best. Or is it going to be something where we take the Bible and allow the Bible in some form to guide us. Something is going to make those decisions, and the question is, should the New Testament do that? But this question itself is a complex one. I don't know if you've thought about it, but if we should be like a New Testament church, which one should we be like? Should we be like Corinth? Should we be like Jerusalem? Should we be like Colossae? And if we're going to be like a New Testament church, well, to what degree should we be like a New Testament church? Do we have to speak Greek? Do we have to meet in homes? Do we have to meet on the days they met? Do we have to do the things that they did in a very specific way? Or is it something looser than that? My proposal to you this morning is that the New Testament gives us an ideal for what the church should be. An ideal. And the reason I say that is because the ideal is formed by both positive and negative statements. There are things said in the New Testament that are good, do this, this is positive, and things that are said, don't do that. And the fact that there is good and bad means that there is a right way to be a church and follow Jesus and a wrong way. It by necessity demands that there are some things we should not do and some things we should do, which implies that there is an ideal. That there is a way that God expects and wants his people to serve him as we gather together as a group. Now, before we jump into this question, we need to establish the fact that New Testament churches were guided by spirit-inspired apostles. And I'm not going to take a lot of time with this, but I think we need to touch on it just in case we don't have this background, which is important for answering this question. And that's not what that should be. Let's see here. This is in the middle. Okay. All right. Well, forget what you just saw. So I'm just going to read these to you then. You can take notes. And uh, I was going to put them on the board, but evidently my PowerPoint got out of order. So Acts 14 and verse 23 says, When they, speaking of Barnabas and Paul, 
had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting. They committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Barnabas and Paul appointed elders in every church, Acts 14, 23. Acts 20 and verse 7. On the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Paul speaks there as we have gathered together to break bread. Apostles involved in what churches are doing. In 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13, Paul makes this bold statement. We thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So I want you to see that the apostles are claiming we're not just regular members here, but we are speaking for God and they're involved in church work as ambassadors for God. Sometimes, though, it's very explicit. I want you to hear me because there are a couple of passages and a couple of times where Paul especially makes bold assertions about specific local church things. In 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 37, after Paul has corrected the worship of the Corinthians, he says, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things that I command or I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Paul says what I'm saying is Jesus' word. What I'm saying about how a church is ordered is Jesus' word. And then Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach but, or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And so you could say, well, that's just Paul. That's just Paul's opinion. But Paul says, I'm speaking for Jesus. And that's what New Testament churches believe, that the apostles were speaking for Jesus even when they corrected things that were wrong in their churches. So, New Testament churches were guided by Spirit-inspired apostles. So they're different from just regular groups. Like, here we are. We are not guided by any Spirit-inspired apostles. We don't have any Spirit-inspired apostles among us. No need to show of hands. We don't have any. Okay, so what we are doing then is to look at what churches who did have Spirit-inspired apostles guiding them did. So, let's talk about this. I believe New Testament churches show us first an ideal spirit. An ideal spirit. What I mean by that is what did the group look like and how were they supposed to behave? And I think we see an ideal as we examine these churches that's shown both by the positive and the negative. Now, first of all, it's a spirit of unity. If you look in Acts 4 and verse 32, the text we open with, Acts 4, 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. They were together. They encouraged one another. They sacrificed for one another. They were of one heart and soul. It is a statement of complete unity. Now, of course, they had their issues. But the spirit that guided them was a spirit of unity. Now, we see that in the positive here, but we also see it by statements and warnings when the spirit of unity is violated. So this is Ephesians 4 and verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So he says, I'm telling you, you need to do this. You need to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And sometimes that's going to involve gentleness and humility and patience and bearing with each other, like we talked about in our reading in Ephesians 4 this week. But this is a description of the spirit of a local church. We are either trying to preserve unity and get along. We're trying to be one. 
or else we're trying to advance our own agendas and break ourselves into cliques and have separations and divisiveness among us. We're one or the other. But every church is going to struggle to live up to this ideal, the ideal of unity. Everyone. You see that sometimes in the New Testament, like in Corinthians. Everyone is going to have some difficulty in fully following the example or the ideal that the New Testament sets out in front of us. But whatever we might say about that, we know what God's will is. We know where we're headed. And the goal is that we have the spirit of unity that they had. So should we be like New Testament churches? Well, when God says so much about unity, it's clear what he wants from us. He wanted it from them, and he wants it from us. So we need to have the spirit of unity that they show us in an ideal form. The, the spirit is also a spirit of love. You see that in, a few, in Acts chapter 4 too. Acts 4 and verse 34, it says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So they gave or sold or sacrificed their things. They gave them to one another. That was an extension of the love that they had for one another because love leads to a giving spirit. We want to give and share. We want everybody to be provided for. Now, we see that by statements that encourage us to love more deeply, what we would call maybe positive expectations. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Love, 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 keep loving, is what God tells the church in Thessalonica. Sometimes, though, it's a negative statement like these. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's lives, not lies. Don't, I guess we should lay down our lies, but that's not what John said. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So here he is critical of a time when someone might have the opportunity and the ability to help and refuse, closing up their heart. He says, how does God's love abide in him? But you see it on both sides. You see that there is love that is encouraged and shown as an example, and then there is a lack of love that is criticized. So there's no question which God wants. From all the statements and the examples we're shown in the New Testament, we see that's what God wants our church to be. So can we have any doubt about whether we should be like New Testament churches? It's obvious that we should be like at least what we see the ideal being in the New Testament. Now, every church is going to struggle to live up to that ideal. Sometimes we're going to have failures of love. Sometimes we're going to need to work on it. We're going to need to grow and abound more and more. But you see, this is what we're striving for. New Testament churches show us an ideal spirit of persistent zeal. I think you see this here in Acts chapter 4 also. If you look in Acts 4, in verse 23, it says, When they were released, this is the apostles being released from, from uh, being arrested. Acts 4, 23, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. And so they pray to God for strength and for boldness. And in verse 31, it says, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They are threatened, don't preach the gospel anymore, and they pray to speak it boldly. And God grants their prayer. They are persistent and they are zealous. One of the most amazing features as you study the New Testament is that these people just never gave up. They just kept going. And 
That is done in both a positive and a negative way. Sometimes it's a command like this. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord, Romans 12, 11. And sometimes it's done in a negative way. This is the book of Revelation. You remember these examples? Revelation 2, 4, the church at Ephesus. I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Or Revelation 3, 1, about Sardis. You have the reputation of being alive, but you were dead. Or the church at Laodicea, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. You see what's happening? They don't have the persistent zeal that they need. And so Jesus says, this is not going to work. So we have examples in the positive and examples in the negative. Every church is going to struggle to live up to this ideal. Sometimes we're not going to be as zealous as we need to be. Sometimes we're not going to be as persistent as we need to be. But we should be like New Testament churches because that's what God wants in both directions. Now, let's leave the idea of the ideal spirit. I want to talk for a minute about how New Testament churches show us an ideal worship. Turn back a page or two to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2. We don't have a lot of descriptions, frankly, of what New Testament churches did in worship. But what we do shows us the expectations God had for Christians worshiping together. Acts 2 and verse 42. Acts 2 and verse 42. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, I believe this is a description of a worship service. It begins with the idea of devotion. In verse 42, they devoted themselves. That is a spirit or an attitude that they're going to focus on worshiping together. It involves, verse 42, the apostles' teaching. Now, the apostles' teaching was revered because the apostles were the men who knew Jesus. They also had the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and so they are going to be followed. They're going to be listened to. It also, verse 42, involves fellowship, which is the idea of sharing. It's not always clear whether the sharing is spiritual or physical, but what fellowship focuses on is the idea of something we do together. It is not an isolated act. When we share, we share with others. It also says in verse 42, the breaking of bread and prayers. The breaking of bread I take to be a reference to the Lord's Supper here. It also involves prayer, as we saw in Acts chapter 4. That was something that they did together. So, what do we do with that verse? What we see here is some of the ideal conditions in the very beginning of the gospel. When Christianity began, what did they do? What did that look like? And that is relevant to us because we have Christian worship in its ideal state. Now, you might say, well, there's some things that aren't in there. It doesn't say anything about singing. That's certainly true. It's also a little bit of a different tone than what you see in like 1 Corinthians, where there are, everybody is bringing their own psalm or hymn or interpretation to the worship. That's not really the way this sounds. But you can say broadly that New Testament churches worshiped by doing certain things, like taking the Lord's Supper, listening to the apostles' teaching, praying together. And we can also add singing to that list from some other passages. Now, when we learn about worship in the New Testament in these churches, sometimes we learn about it from the negative. I want you to go with me to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. So we see the, the ideal by seeing when the ideal is violated. 1 Corinthians 11. First Corinthians 11, verse 17. First Corinthians 11, 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. 
For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. I don't think it takes a lot of observation here to notice that Paul is, is upset. That they have not taken the Lord's Supper the way they were intended to. So they're abusing the Lord's Supper in some way by eating separately, by excluding, somehow by humiliating those who are poor. And Paul recalibrates the Lord's Supper in this passage. He goes on to talk about, verse 23 to 26, how Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, the passage that Brother Jim read for us, how Jesus had a certain goal about remembering Him, how we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes, how we examine ourselves, how we recognize the body, one another. All of that is what the Lord's Supper is intended to be about. But we learn about that from the negative. Aren't you thankful that the Corinthians messed that up? If the Corinthians hadn't messed that up, we wouldn't know all of those things that Paul says, these are the essentials of what the Lord's Supper is intended to be. So we learn about the ideal by seeing where the ideal went wrong. And you have an apostle there saying, whoa, 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 this is not what this should look like. When Paul says that, he's saying there's an ideal. There's something you should be striving for, but you're missing it. So should we be like New Testament churches? If we're going to take the Lord's Supper, which is what Jesus tells Christians to do, why would we not do it the way an apostle says it needs to be done? Why would we take the idea that we should do what Jesus told us to do, but not in the way Jesus' apostles told us to do it? To me, that is strange logic. Instead, it seems to me that the same book and even the same train of teaching that teaches us to observe the Lord's Supper also teaches us some facts that are important about how we do that. Now, we're all going to have our own struggles about that. Each church is going to struggle with how worship is going to look in their assembly. But we have an ideal that says this is how this should be done and how it should not be done. Turn the page to 1 Corinthians 14. You also see this when it comes to their broader worship. Paul criticizes the fact that in Corinth they were focused on tongues. And instead he says your focus needs to be about understanding and being built up. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 12 so with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. And he talks again about how in verse 15, I'll pray with my mind and with the Spirit. He talks about in verse 26, let all things be done for building up or edification. These are priorities in worship that we learn from the negative because they weren't doing what they should have done. So Paul talks about how there's a need for order in worship because the priority is, is everyone built up? That we need to be careful about how worship is structured because there needs to be a building up. So we learn from New Testament churches what worship should look like. Should we be like them about our worship? Should we pattern our worship after the worship that we see in a sort of ideal state in the New Testament? Frankly, I'm not really sure what the alternative is. Basically, it appears to me that either we can do what they did or we can do whatever we want. And if worship is just about me doing whatever I feel like, then I really don't have much 
to work with in the New Testament anyway. Why would I need the book at all? I'm just going to do what I feel like. But if I am going to do the things that are in the New Testament, I'm not sure why I would throw out the expectations and instructions that accompany that. So to me, it appears that if they show us an ideal worship, how God says this should be done and should not be done, then that's a document to pay attention to because that's what the apostles have taught us. Third, New Testament churches show us an ideal structure. Let's go back to Acts chapter 14 for a moment. Acts 14. Acts 14, and I want to begin in verse 21. Acts 14 and verse 21. I appreciate you turning along and following along in your Bible. Acts 14 and verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So Paul and Barnabas, the text says, appoint elders in every church, specifically Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. So these men, the elders, are going to be the decision makers and the leaders in each one of these congregations. Now, we read in other places in the New Testament of there being deacons or special servants in certain congregations. So, for example, in Philippians 1 and verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So you have organization here, overseers or elders, and you have deacons who serve under them. So you have a long list of character requirements for elders in Timothy and in Titus. You also have a list of deacon requirements in the book of 1 Timothy. But what is most telling to me is that when Paul describes... Local churches that are not, that are elderless, that don't have elders. He says a certain thing about them. This is Titus 1 and verse 5. He says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. This word here, put what remained in order, is a word that means what is lacking, what is missing. If you're reading the New King James, it says to uh, appoint elders, and I, I believe it has to do with what is lacking. So the idea is when these churches don't have elders, something's missing, something's wrong. And that's an apostle's words. Something needs to be fixed. And so when Paul and Barnabas go back through these cities, they say, you need elders, let's appoint some elders. Now, it might be that a congregation does not have elders because there are no men who meet those qualifications. But we need to know even in that circumstance, something's missing, something's lacking. Now, if that's the idea, then think about what that means about an ideal structure. It means that ideally there need to be elders and deacons in a local church. That's what God expects that church to look like. Now, the question is, should we be like New Testament churches in our structure? I mean, after all, we live in modern America we have corporate structures and hierarchies that make this model of elders and deacons look woefully outdated. I mean, we could be a lot more efficient with the way we structure things today. I guess some might argue about efficient. Should there be a precedent? Should churches be independent? Or should they be linked together in a diocese? I mean, after all, 
probably a lot of churches in Arkansas, if we all link together, it might be easier. We might be able to pool our money, do some different things that, that we couldn't do if we were just independent. I just want to remind you that what we're seeing here is an ideal taught in the New Testament. One that is clearly not only approved by the apostles, but taught by the apostles specifically. This is what Christianity looked like when led by the apostles. It looked like this. I don't believe it looked like this because the apostles, empowered by the Spirit, just had no other ideas. Sorry, I mean, we we would have done it better, but this was the limit of our capacity. Led by the Spirit, if they had the opportunity or the desire to do something different, they could have done that. This instead is the answer to the question, what kind of structure and leadership does God say he wants in churches led by his men? So if God wants it and God approves it, how can we ignore it? Or more specifically, how can we try to do the same thing God tells us to do, but in a better way than God tells us to do it? You see what I'm saying? To me, the New Testament church is not just this is how they got it done. Now you get it done the way you want. Instead, it appears to be the way God wants it done. So I might point out that I see remarkable wisdom in the pattern of how a church was organized in the New Testament. I might point out that I see a lot of advantages to that. And I also might point out that we're going to sometimes have difficulty meeting the requirements for structure. But we know what to strive for. We know the ideal. Let's go quickly to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. So the New Testament churches also show us an ideal teaching. Galatians chapter 1. We've already talked about the focus on the apostles' teaching. And I just want to go through this very quickly. In Galatians 1 and verse 6, Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So the Galatians are at least toying with accepting a different gospel, what we might call Jesus plus Moses gospel. The idea of incorporating the Old Testament and the law of Moses into Christianity. And Paul is is concerned about that. He says, you're turning away from Christ to a different gospel. There's only one gospel, and if someone comes and preaches anything else, let him be accursed. You might combine this with all of the times. I just want to give you a brief list. All of the times that different kinds of false doctrine are mentioned. In the New Testament, Christians are taught to reject Gnosticism, like Zach talked about last week. The doctrine of Balaam, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, the doctrine of Jezebel, the doctrine that the resurrection is already past, the teaching that there is no resurrection, the teaching that Jesus did not come in the flesh, the teaching that we have to keep Moses' law and circumcision to be saved, the teaching that the day of the Lord has already come. What Paul calls in Colossians philosophy and empty deceit, what Paul calls in Colossians asceticism, All of these are specifically condemned. And then there is also the positive, which is to say, just keep doing what we already taught you. The gospel that is simple and understandable, and then all of the false teaching that could lead you away. Now you might ask, well, what does that have to do with New Testament churches? 
Churches matter because churches welcome and promote teaching. Or churches disavow and distance themselves from teaching. Churches are places where we meet together with other Christians and ideas are contagious. So either we are going to together spread and accept false ideas or reject and disavow false ideas. And we're going to have a choice as to how seriously we take the teaching you see in the New Testament churches. And in some ways, this is an ideal we're always going to strive toward and probably always fall short of. But we know how to head. We know what direction to go in because of the New Testament churches. And finally, New Testament churches show us an ideal lifestyle. I want you to go with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians 3. I am impressed at how New Testament churches not only do the teaching, but they also show the way of life that comes from the teaching. And that's a part of the New Testament record as well. 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 6. 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So here is a lifestyle issue. It's not really a teaching issue. It's not really a structure issue. In some ways it's a spirit issue, but, but really it's about how Christians are living. And he says, some Christians here are idle. They're not working. They're refusing to work. And the problem is that the church is supporting that. And so they're, I, I, I know this is not a technical term, they're mooching. And Paul says, that's not the way Christians live. Where we refuse to do our own work and take care of our own business and instead live off the generosity of our brethren. Now, I understand there are situations where this might not apply, where we're talking about disability and things like that. This is about people refusing to work. And Paul says, that's not the way we live. If they're going to continue to live that way, you have nothing to do with them. That's not a Christian lifestyle. You have an ideal there, right? Christians don't live this way. And he even says, remember how we were. We worked hard among you. We weren't just eating your bread. We took care of ourselves. That's a lifestyle issue. You might put under this same category... The spirit about how we address sin among us. The lifestyle we're going to allow and countenance among one another. Like in 1 Corinthians 5 where there is a man who is in a sinful relationship with his stepmother. And it is acceptable to the church. In fact, they're sort of bragging about it. And Paul says, this is not the way this should be. You should have mourned that the person could be taken away from you instead of celebrating it. That is an ideal lifestyle. Now, you see that from the negative in these two instances. But it is the idea that we know how Christians should live and that that has to do with what we do as a church because what we do as a church either enables that or refuses to be a part of that. And so Paul, both places, calls on the church to act so that these, this lifestyle is not allowed among brethren. So... What should we do with that information? I think it's, it's obvious in my view 
that if we're going to be Christians, we can't directly go against the lifestyle Jesus said he wants Christians to have. If we go against the lifestyle Jesus promoted and taught, in what sense can we call ourselves Christians if we're not doing what Jesus and the apostles told Christians to do? So, New Testament churches show us an ideal, and I want to emphasize that idea, that there is a goal, and we're going to hit and miss in that pursuit. Some of these things are going to be harder than others, and some of these we're going to fall short in, but we know where we're headed, and we know that when we need to grow, these are the directions in which we need to grow. Now, I have said before, and I want to repeat it, that Christianity has never been not from the very beginning, and anything goes freelance, make it up as you go religion. It is a religion of learning and following and submission and trust. We are taught and we are led. That is the way Christianity has always worked from the very beginning. So if that is the case personally, and it certainly is, as we are disciples of Jesus, if that is the case personally, why would it not be the case as we gather in a group of Christians? that we would not be led and taught. So, should we be like the New Testament churches? Well, we should be like the ideals that they strove for. That's what we mean when we say we're trying to follow the Bible in this local church. We are going to have something that guides our decisions and our practices. Something's going to guide us. And that can either come from within us, or it can come because we're at least trying to follow what the New Testament teaches. I propose that if we are to be Christians, we need to follow the ideals that the apostles and the Lord laid down for us. Now, does that mean that we're going to do all these things exactly the way they did them? I think there's some leeway in that, frankly. It's pretty clear that churches look different as you went from place to place. That sometimes churches were going to have strengths that others did not, and weaknesses that others did not. But... My emphasis is that we need to let the New Testament be our guide in those decisions, not throw out the New Testament because we don't like what it says or sometimes it's hard to follow. The New Testament should be our guide rather than an impediment in our way as we pursue these things. Would you pray with me about that? Oh God, our Father, we thank you so much for the time that you've given us to open your word together and to think about very important things about what we do as a group. Father, we're so thankful for the fact that you have set us apart through your son. You've taken us out of the world. You've washed us clean. You've made us into people that we could not be on our own. And we're thankful, Father, that we are together, that we have one another, that we can enjoy life together, that we can pick one another up when we struggle and bear one another's burdens. We're thankful for this local church. We're thankful, Father, for the guidance you've given in your word. And as we think about how we are going to take your word and try to live by it, I pray that you'll give us wisdom and humility so that we can trust that you have the answers even when we do not. Father, I pray that you'll help us as we try to work together, as we try to follow your word and spread your word so that others can follow you too. Help it, Father, never to be about us, but always about you and our devotion to you and our trust in you. I ask your blessings on our elders as they lead us, as they make decisions in wisdom, 
as they make decisions in your word to guide us and do what's best for us. Help us, Father, to humbly submit to them and to trust their judgment and to trust the fact that you have put them in place over us. And Father, I pray for this congregation that we can continue to grow in spirit and in strength. And Father, as occasion may have it, that we can grow in number so that more can know your will and your way. But Father, I pray in all of this, you will be glorified and not us. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. There might be someone here this morning who needs to respond to the invitation of the Lord. Jesus invites you to him to come and be free from your sins, be washed clean, to have those sins taken away, nailed to the cross. And we would love nothing more than to help you to become a disciple of Jesus and to begin a journey that will lead to eternal life with him. If you're ready this morning to leave behind your sins, to be baptized into Christ, have those sins washed away, if there's any need that you have, please come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.